Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, calling several servants back to the office. The Federal Public Service is adopting a common hybrid model of employees working on site at least two to three days each week. Since the pandemic, Canada's public service has been working largely from home. But today, the government said it wants them back to the office. Can the government really force them back? And is TikTok safe on government phones? We're watching what the Americans are doing. and We're going to continue to, to make sure that Canadians are, are safe. The U.S. Senate has moved to ban the popular app from federal devices. Should Canada now follow suit? MPs will be debating that at some point, but we'll have Annie Bergeron Oliver talking about that in just a few moments. Plus, a crystal ball on the housing market. What does the big dip in sales and a steady hold on the mortgage stress test say about the market in the new year? We'll dig into that too. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. The federal government is giving civil servants a little lump of coal 10 days before Christmas. They're telling federal public servants they will be required to return to the office two to three days a week in the new year. The return to office plan was announced this afternoon by Treasury Board President Mona Forte. Now, many civil servants in the federal government started working from home during the pandemic. There has been some resistance to going back to the office. There are pros and cons to each system, but the back-to-work plan is expected to be fully implemented by March of 2023. Now, the federal government is giving civil servants um, up until that time to make sure that they do get it all done. We will now be bringing in Treasury Board President Mona Forte to speak about this um, Ms. Forza, I want to ask you, why are we doing this now? Why are you announcing it now, first of all? Well, first, good afternoon, Mike. Thank you for having me today. And let's uh, go back to June of this year, six months ago, when uh, we announced that we were no longer, uh, we were moving from a remote by necessity approach to a hybrid by design approach. And we've been experimenting over the last six months on how organizations were invited to bring um, public servants back to the workplace in different organizations, depending on what kind of services they are offering and making sure that we would have uh, good approach of serving uh, Canadians. Now, today, we are continuing this uh, model of hybrid by design and giving a common approach to make sure that we include also, as we've been experimenting, making sure that uh, public servants have uh, fairness uh, and equity and being more cohesive now that we've learned in the last six months. But Minister, you understand the timing of this. It's 10 days before Christmas. A number of people may be off as of tomorrow. This is going to be a shock to many of them. Well, we also uh, made sure that we are implementing this starting January 16th up to March 31st of 2023. We want a smooth transition. I think it's important for public servants uh, to know and organizations to know that we're moving from the experimentation we've had for the last six months to making sure that we will have more cohesive, uh, common approach, a model, I should say, in uh, the public service. We know the private uh, sector, uh, provincial governments, territorial governments are all going through this adaptation and have brought their approach uh, forward. And we are continuing to make sure we are serving Canadians the best way we can. And the hybrid by design is uh, here to stay. 
You had said in person in, in your uh, press conference that in person works better, supports collaboration, team spirit, innovation, and a culture of belonging. What's the data that you have to support that? And I guess what I mean is, do you have? Did you see any drop in productivity uh, when people were at home? So, thing that we are really focusing on is making sure that we are experimenting how we are moving from a remote by necessity to a hybrid by design. As I said earlier, we're making sure to have fairness and equity across the government. We know that everybody needs to have this same fairness and equity approach. And also, we know that to be more inclusive and permit advancement, that the uh, employees need to work together and need to be uh, in person part of uh, the the week, as we said, two to three days to make sure we we really best uh, serve uh, Canadians, all the programs and services that we have. So when you talk about that greater fairness and equity across workplace, how does this model provide that type of fairness? So again, in, uh, when I said in September, organizations were mandated and encouraged with the Treasury Board guidelines to, again, develop a hybrid by design approach. And different organizations did different things. And we saw a lack of uh, fairness across the government. That's why we're bringing forward that common approach and making sure that we have a common approach, which is 40 to 60 percent of the time or two to three days uh, a week. back in the office. There have been some workers that were designated as remote only. Do they continue to be exempted? Again, each organization is going to uh, adapt uh, with the new guidelines and I I won't go through different scenarios. There will be different scenarios, but the um, management will uh, look into uh, the different scenarios and and make sure we adapt and and follow the, the common approach we're proposing. Just in closing, I wanted to ask you, what do you say to some of the um, employees that you have in the public service that say that they've been very productive at home and that it actually is a perfect work-life balance at this point um, and to force them back into the office into a hybrid format that will really disrupt that? Are you worried that you could have a mass exodus from the public service as a result of that? Well, again, the objective uh, is for us to uh, serve Canadians with all the programs and services we have. And we need to be sustainable with the experimentation that we've had. As you know, I mentioned from remote by necessity, uh, we did afterwards uh, start to have a hybrid by design, organization adapted. Now we really want to make sure we have a common approach, this model, and now organizations have the new guidelines that were posted today. And we will continue to look at how um, we will be serving Canadians, how those programs and services that the federal uh, government uh, brings every day. And we will continue to uh, evaluate and uh, be sure that we are a sustainable uh, government. Treasury Board President Mona Forte, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. We appreciate this. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You too. Let's move on now to the global conversation about TikTok and its security. Politicians across the border are pushing for an outright TikTok ban. Have a look at this. I want to ban TikTok for a very simple reason. They allow the Chinese Communist Party to gain access to all of the private data on any device in America that's using TikTok. That's our kids. That's phones connected to our kids' phones. 
And that's a national security threat, but it's a direct threat to our way of life, our economics. It's allowed them to interfere in the midterm elections. This company should be banned. I don't know why they're allowed to operate in the United States. Strong words from Florida Senator Marco Rubio. And digital fentanyl is what they are calling it, addicting Americans, collecting troves of their data and censoring their news. That's how a bipartisan uh, group of politicians describe the enormously popular video sharing app TikTok. Politicians like Florida Senator Marco Rubio are calling for TikTok and any other social media company under the influence of Russia, uh, China and other countries of concern to be banned in the United States. So how much of a concern is uh, that app and whose parent company is called uh, ByteDance? And is it enough for, of a concern for the U.S. Senate to vote in favor to ban the app on all government devices? That is what's happened so far. It's not just federal politicians, though, that are taking action. Texas, Utah and Alabama are some of the states that have banned the app from federal employees' phones. So will Canada follow America's lead? Let's bring in CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver for this. Annie, what did politicians have to say about TikTok and how much of a concern the security is? Well, in the United States, as you just heard from Marco Rubio, there is a lot of concern, especially from Republican uh, lawmakers who say that, you know, they don't know exactly how this data is protected and they want to ensure that that information is not provided to the Chinese government through the, the its parent company. And so this is why you're seeing a lot of Republican states and in general lawmakers and states moving towards the ban. You mentioned a number of states in the last two weeks. I believe that number is somewhere between seven and 14 states that just in the last two weeks have moved to ban TikTok on government apps. You also have in the Senate uh, earlier this week a ban that went in place, a law that was passed unanimously in the mm -hmm. Senate to ban it on government devices. Now, that still has to be approved by Congress, and it's rising, so it's unlikely that that'll happen this week. But there are these movements. Here in Canada, uh, politicians seem to be a little bit less strong in terms of their language. We heard from the NDP who said that, you know, um, a ban is not to be dismissed outright, so it seems like they're still open to the idea of considering a ban. We spoke to Michael Chong as well, who said that he believes that Canada needs to do some more review and mm -hmm. investigation in terms of how TikTok is using Canadians' information and data. Now, we did speak to TikTok as well, and they say that the company has never provided any Canadian user data to China and said it would never, even if the Chinese government asked them. TikTok says that's not something that would happen. Uh, TikTok is calling what's happening in the United States a politically motivated ban, and it says really conversation should be continuing with lawmakers at all level to figure out how their data can be stored better. So Parliament is now on break for winter, but how are you expecting this conversation to be carried forward into the new year? Well, I think this is something that's going to continue. You can see this push in the United States. And as long as that's continuing, I think the conversation here in Canada will as well. We've seen the government talking about trying to get tough on China. We saw them, you know, turn away the Huawei decision mm -hmm. when it comes to 5G. And we saw last week a controversy with giving a contract to a company that has ties to the Chinese government. So there is sort of a skepticism about companies that have ties to China and what that means, especially when it comes to personal data and how much can be provided to the Chinese government. Uh, the prime minister says CSE, which is one of the top intelligence agency, is looking at this. Champagne, the industry minister, said that you have to remain vigilant. So it's clear that Canadian officials are sort of looking and keeping an eye on it. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's probably going to be a conversation that continues in the new year. And we'll continue to watch it. CTV News' Annie Bergeron-Oliver, thank you so much for doing this, Annie. Thanks. As Parliament heads home for the holidays, Alberta is challenging its gun laws. I have directed that the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service take over the handling of charges involving the Firearms Act starting January 1st, 2023.
The province of Alberta says it informed the federal justice minister that its provincial crown prosecutors will take over the handling of charges under the Federal Firearms Act. Justice Minister David Lametti was asked about the change earlier today. The criminal code uh, falls under federal jurisdiction. The Firearms Act uh, is a federal statute, and the, and, the, and the courts have held that uh, firearms regulation falls under federal jurisdiction. I would expect, as is the case with all other criminal code provisions and, 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 uh, and federal criminal statutes, um, that police officers will enforce the law. And prosecutors, and it is mainly, as I've said, provincial prosecutors across Canada, members of the provincial, provincial crowns, um, who prosecute those offences. Uh, it would be extraordinary if, if uh, they made a unilateral decision not to uh, enforce the law. That would not only offend the Constitution, but would also offend the rule of law. Coming up, the federal government will support a feasibility study to search a Winnipeg landfill for the remains of two Indigenous women believed to be killed by a serial killer. So how will this federal funding move things forward? Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller will join us next on Power Play. You shouldn't back down, and we shouldn't have to put up this fight either. This is an opportunity to come together, and I hope we start. I'm not going to stop putting up this fight, and I'm going to continue advocating until this gets addressed. That was Cambria Harris. She's been fighting for Winnipeg police to search for her mother's remains. Harris and the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs have been pressuring officials to search the Prairie Green landfill. That's where Winnipeg police believe the two Indigenous women were taken after last taken last spring after being killed by an alleged serial killer. Now, last week, police said a search of the landfill would be logistically too difficult. But now, a feasibility study on how to search the landfill is starting to come together. Yesterday on Power Play, we spoke to Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs Grand Chief Kathy Merrick about how things are moving forward. Have a listen to this. Time is of essence to to be able to to uh, that's why we asked for for the committee to meet as soon as possible once uh, the Winnipeg Police uh, Chief assigned a person to the committee that they're going to meet tomorrow, that they're going to be able to come back to provide us with feedback in terms of uh, what's going to be happening. The federal government has confirmed it will fund a feasibility study to search the landfill. To talk more about this, let's bring in Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller. Minister Miller, thanks for taking the time. The federal government is committed to funding this feasibility search and to work with the community on this. What's a reasonable timeline to figure out what the next step is, in other words, to complete this feasibility study? Yeah, Excellent question, Mike, and I don't have a great answer for you. We know winter's setting in. Uh, and we're talking about meters and meters of trash mm-hmm. to, to find uh, the remains of, uh, of, of women to provide some closure for, uh, for the families. Uh, we're willing to work together with, uh, with officials, with Indigenous communities, with the families uh, of the victims to, to do a feasibility study, price it out, and see what the next steps are. And this is something that uh, it shouldn't escape anyone, that this uh, will, will not be something that will be done in a short period of time. It'll, it'll take a lot of time 
stage things out and to work with uh, work at all times with with the families to make sure that they are being respected and that their wishes are being respected and that a, a search that is culturally sensitive uh, and appropriate is done to see what what the next steps in are in the process so in that sense you're trying to manage expectations from not only the family but the community well what we're trying to do is respect the wishes of the families as as those wishes may evolve and as as they see the results um, of the feasibility study, you can imagine that the trust is very thin toward, towards the Canadian government, the Manitoba government, police services, the city of Winnipeg. Uh, we want this to be done in the right way with that leadership uh, of the communities and um, and AMC, Southern Chiefs Organization, at the forefront. Uh, but it has to be done listening to them first. So we stepped up and said we're prepared to fund it, but right. the next steps are really within uh, within the hands of those who will decide what they want to see in terms of the, what that feasibility study looks like. When you consider the, the different layers that are here in terms of government and in terms of jurisdiction, is everybody finally on the same page? And I say that because we remember last week the Winnipeg police chief said it's just logistically too difficult to do this. Is everybody finally on the same page with this? Well, we've been having discussions with uh, police services in Winnipeg with with the RCMP to see what is uh, in the realm of the possible, looking at previous experience with some of these tragedies, mm -hmm. to see what is possible. Uh, I think no one will be satisfied with those answers until they have a feasibility study that is run by their own people that they trust. And I think that is sort of the, the, the crux of the challenge. Um, obviously, whether I'm satisfied or, 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 or not is not the concern. We want to make sure those families are properly served and that, that, that uh, Indigenous uh, families are treated the same way as anyone else in this country. Taking a bit of a step back, when you hear from the daughters, the people in the community, and when you consider the history that this country has, especially with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, how important is it that everybody work together on this to get their remains back home to their families? Well, we know in these situations, the final report into missing murdered Indigenous women and girls clearly said that jurisdiction is poisonous, and you see this uh, in these instances and many others, uh, people tripping over each other or just passing the buck to make sure that uh, nothing ever gets done. And, and, and so the, that, that fuels the distrust I mentioned earlier. Um, but it also fuels um, an inability to move forward in a way that's respectful of, of, of people just trying to get some answers and some closures, closure with respect to their loved ones. And so um, we need to work together. We need to break down barriers. That is often challenging with government layers that like to point the fingers, but um, I'm not saying everything's perfect here, but we're willing to take a, a chance and work with the government of Manitoba, work with the, the mayor, who's been excellent, as well as, uh, as well as local police of jurisdiction. Are you hopeful now that there has been this, I don't want to call it a breakthrough, but at least there's a bit of light now on this, as opposed to when you had, just last week, the family members coming here to ask of the Prime Minister, ask of you to finally go and look at this, and that now that light is shed on it, do you have a little bit of hope that maybe the ball is rolling in the right direction? A little. I mean, the proof will be in the next steps and how, how that's rolled out. Uh, you know, in this country, too often, Indigenous women have been treated like trash, and, and in, in this case, very literal sense of it, and no one wants to see those remains mm -hmm. in, in that location, but again, It'll be something that the family decides how to commemorate, how to honor, and how to get even a, a, a small modicum of closure. Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller, thank you so much for joining us. I thank appreciate you, this. Coming up, mortgage stress test holding steady. What does that mean for you and the housing market? Will BNN's Paul Bagnell breaks it all down next on Power Plan.
We're going to start with some other news that you need to know right now. Premier Danielle Smith is apologizing for a remark she made in the legislature earlier this week. Some believe she was equating Alberta's treatment by Ottawa with the abuses suffered by Indigenous peoples in Canada. The way I've described it to the chiefs that I've spoken with is that they have fought a battle over the last number of years to get sovereignty respected and to, and to extract themselves from the paternalistic Indian Act. We get treated the exact same way from Ottawa. Now, Smith tried to clarify that comment yesterday, saying she was merely stating that Alberta and First Nations share a common adversary. First Nations leaders say the Premier's comment is completely unacceptable. I can't quite think of more disgusting comments to make. I'm not sure how she sees uh, the way Alberta fits into the federal scheme of this country as being the same as children that were kidnapped, raped, and murdered. The federal government has announced it will seek a delay uh, to the March 17th delay to make medical assistance in dying available to patients whose sole medical condition is a mental health illness. The extension would require legislation. We have heard concerns of Canadians and experts about whether the health care system will be ready to accommodate made requests for persons whose sole medical condition is a mental illness by March 17, 2023. This is a very complex question. Many are concerned about how this will impact them and their loved ones. And the trend of declining home sales and prices is continuing in this country. The Canadian Real Estate Association says national home sales fell by 3.3% between October and November. But what really stands out is the difference from a year ago. Last month's home sales came in nearly 39% below the numbers from November of 2021. Today, Canada's banking regulator announced it isn't making any changes to the stress test for uninsured mortgages. For more on what you should know if you're looking to buy or rent in the next year, let's bring in BNN Bloomberg anchor and reporter Paul Bagnell. Paul, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the stress test first now. For people who may not be familiar with it, how does, it, how does that test work? And what does today's decision not to touch it mean about the current market? Well, the way it works, uh, Mike, is that uh, borrowers are required to prove that they can uh, carry a mortgage at a rate of 2% greater than the rate that they're being offered by their financial institution. This goes back to 2012. That was in the, uh, the period, uh, the years after the financial crisis. And what happened in the financial crisis is that interest rates were crushed and we uh, uh, were about three or four years into that very long period of ultra-low interest rates. And in 2012, the banking regulator, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, became concerned that Canadians might borrow too aggressively with all that cheap money around, and more to the point for the banking regulator, that banks might be willing to lend too liberally. And so uh, it's the, the banking regulator's job to, to safeguard the banks uh, from uh, uh, excesses. And so they put in something called a minimum required, uh, the minimum qualifying rate or the stress test as it's more informally known. And uh, ever since then, uh, a, a would-be borrower on a mortgage has got to prove that he or she can handle a mortgage rate of uh, 2% greater than the offered rate or five and a quarter percent. But 
uh, as we all know now, the, the rates being offered by banks are more than five and a quarter percent. So to, uh, to get a mortgage these days, you're looking at uh, having to qualify or prove, proving that you can handle a mortgage of uh, seven and a quarter, seven and a half percent or so. And that's one of the big reasons, Mike, that home sales have dropped off a cliff over the past year. Money is much more expensive and uh, would-be borrowers are having to prove that they can handle a, a rate of up to seven and a half or even greater. So what does that decline in sales mean heading into the new year? Uh, well, the, the housing market is in a slowdown. There's no question. There's a, uh, a fewer Canadians are putting their homes up for sale. Fewer Canadians can afford uh, the the stress test. When you go on a, a bank's website and you start shopping for a mortgage, anybody who's done it will notice that uh, the, the, that website will automatically tack on 2% to the rate uh, that's being offered. And, and so money is not cheap anymore. The, these rules were brought in during a period of historically low interest rates, historically cheap money. That's all changed over the past year or so as inflation has surged. The Bank of Canada has raised interest rates to try to slow down uh, uh, inflation. As the Bank of Canada does that, the, uh, the, the Canadian banks raise their prime lending rates, and that is what uh, uh, variable rate mortgages are based on. Fixed rate mortgages are based on the bond market, but we've seen rates come up there as well. BNM Bloomberg's Paul Bagnell. Thank you so much for doing this, Paul. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Still to come, we continue our series of Power Players of the Year. After a seven-month leadership campaign, Pierre Polyev is the leader of the official opposition. So what gave Polyev the edge in the race? Well, one of his campaign strategists will join the press gallery next on Power Play. Well, for a third time in four years, a new resident will be spending Christmas at Stornoway. Pierre Polyev was handed the keys to the official opposition leader's residence back in September when he won the Conservative leadership race. That was a decisive first ballot victory with 68% of total points going his way. That commanding victory is why we're naming Pierre Polyev as one of the power players of the year. Now, he's not here for an interview, but he is more than welcome to if he wants to, and that Invitation remains extended, Mr. Polyev. Let's go back to what happened, and we'll remind everybody. He fended off challenges from his caucus colleagues, Leslin Lewis and Scott Aitchison. was also that former Quebec premier. You remember him, Jean Charest, and Ontario MPP, Roman Baber. Now, uh, you'll remember also that the Conservative Leadership Election Committee disqualified Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown in the summer over allegations he broke campaign financing rules. With such a convincing victory, is this now the party of Pierre, or has he softened his message as he seeks to broaden the so-called Big Blue Tent? Let's bring in the press gallery to discuss this. Joining me now are Toronto Star reporter Stephanie Levitz, Globe and Mail reporter Ian Bailey. He also writes the Globe's daily politics briefing. And our special guest is Brayden Akers. He's a conservative strategist with Navigator. He's also the director of stakeholder relations on Pierre Polyev's leadership campaign. Thank you all for being here. Brayden, we're going to start with you. In the last week on Parliament Hill, after months of downplaying the importance of the parliamentary press gallery journalist, Pierre Polyev held another press conference. He even invited cameras into his last caucus address. Are we seeing a thawing of relations here, Braden? 
Um, I, you know, I think we saw Pierre do that on his first day as CPC leader. In fact, uh, he invited uh, the Ottawa Press Gallery into uh, his first caucus meeting as leader, um, where he uh, addressed caucus and outlined some of the priorities that he laid out during the leadership process. And I think you are, you're completely right, Mike. This was a historic leadership win for Pierre. Uh, he won 312 ridings. Sorry, he won. Uh, he sold 312,000 members and won all ridings except for eight across the country. Uh, you know, he did that by uh, speaking to the priorities of Canadians. And at times he was actually out fundraising, even the Liberal Party of Canada. But Braden, on the actual thawing of the relations, I, I hear your point. I was at that first caucus meeting where he did address it, but then there was a period where there was zero communication. And in fact, there was a lot of finger pointing from his side. So the fact that now we have seen a press conference and another invitation to the caucus closing uh, comments, do you think that we are seeing a bit of a shift here? Um, I, I expect them to, you know, continue on the strategy they've always had, which is they're going directly with Cana to Canadians with their message. You know, Pierre's campaign when he ran for leader really focused on getting that message through social media channels. Um, he also really focused on local media. Um, I, I, I don't know if, if that's the plan of the, um, the leader's office moving forward, uh, but it's a plan that's worked in the past. Um, it's something Stephen Harper deployed when he was leader uh, and prime minister, and it's proven effective as conservatives for conservatives in the past. Steph, I want to talk to you about the by-election loss this week for the Conservatives in Mississauga Lakeshore. Do you think it gives the Conservatives any moment of pause going forward here in terms of the direction that they're going? Well, what's interesting about it is if you look at the vote percentages at the end of the day, they did all right when compared to how they did in that riding mm -hmm. in the general election. The, the, the vote didn't go up and the vote didn't go down. It remained the same. And that's with them not actually putting a lot of effort into it, it appeared, at a national level. I mean, Pierre Polyev never went to the riding. There's some analysis suggesting they didn't buy a drop of online advertising, no Facebook, no social. Um, and so it's interesting, well, what would have happened if they had tried? Yeah. Mike, right? Yeah. And so, I, you know, perhaps that's an interesting point to make. I mean, they say, you know, the path to power is supposed to lie through the GTA. That right. is the conventional wisdom we have. If, if as leader of the party, Pierre Polyev can't move the numbers in a riding like this, I mean, at all by doing nothing, um, what, again, what would happen if he had at least tried? And right. I think that that might be the concern coming out of the party now, which is, well, why didn't you try? Aren't we supposed to be putting the boots to Justin Trudeau? I mean, isn't mm -hmm. that part of this? Why weren't you there? I think there's a lot of questions that will come out of that about that campaign strategy and the extent to which it represents, is it their template for by-elections going forward? Or was this just a one-off with them acknowledging, you know what, the Liberals had a super strong local candidate. Right. We couldn't have won the riding, so we backed off. Ian, I wanted to ask you about this possible shift with Mr. Polyev, because you were one of the first reporters to start counting the days between when we yes. uh, spoke with him in the, in the parliamentary press gallery. Are you seeing a bit of a change in him in the last couple of days, especially since the by-election? Um, he did invite the media in to watch his speech to caucus, but of course he didn't take questions from the media mm -hmm. after his speech on a day when I recall other leaders did today. Um, the Prime Minister himself took, a, I was there, he took three or four questions before going into the Cabinet meeting. So uh, Mr. Polyev seems in a very sort of a gingerly sort of uh, more cautiously 
shifting approach to the media. You know, a few weeks ago, Alberta MP Garnet Genus uh, uh, was outside caucus before the caucus meeting and uh, wanted to talk about some legislation he was involved with. And he ended up taking a number of uh, media questions on varied subjects. He did very well. And you looked at that moment and thought, well, he's not the leader, but a leader can do this and the world doesn't end. And so that was an interesting moment. You know, Mr. Polyev is free to uh, approach these matters as he chooses. Uh, We'll see if that changes in the year going ahead. Braden, I wanted to just uh, shift for a moment back to the leadership race. I mean, it was a bare-knuckle fight, an extremely decisive win, as you would sort of note. And that's why we have him as one of our power players of the year. Do you think that his, it was a case of his message resonating with people, or was the party just ready to, for this brand of leader in this moment of time? Uh, I think it's definitely his message resonating with people. I, I have the privilege of going coast to coast uh, to coast with Pierre across the country and attending his rallies. And um, it was just it's a movement that I've never seen in conservative politics or even Canadian politics before. Uh, new Canadians coming out to support Pierre and buy a conservative party membership, people who had never been involved in politics before. I, I don't think it's necessarily shift of the party. It's just bringing new people on. And Steph, I know that um, you know we were we were talking just earlier. I think you were trying to signal you wanted to get in on that conversation earlier. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about: oh, Pierre Polyev's not talking to the media. He's not talking to the media. We don't talk about why does it matter, right? And the question, the the reason one could suggest it should matter is that he's an elected official in this country. He is accountable. Mm-hmm. He ought to be accountable for what he says, what he does, the ideas he proposes. And if the party that bills themselves as the party of accountability and transparency can't put their leader up to be transparent and accountable, I think that's problematic. I think this, you know, this gets framed as a fight between, oh, the, the media elite and, oh, the party. And that's not what this is about. This is about accountability for our government and our elected officials and from the man who would like to be prime minister. I think it's reasonable that he should be put to questions about what he'd like to do with the country if he gets to run it. I know. Yeah, go ahead. It's worth noting that in the the news conference he did, a news conference or scrum that he did, I might note, without announcement, uh, there were journalists there who asked questions. But, of course, you know, there, there was no advance notice. He was entirely capable in making his points. He got through in both official languages. So it's all the more curious that he doesn't um, sort of combine that kind of thing with social media outreach as other leaders do. Mm-hmm. It's not an either or. You can certainly do both. Braden, I'll bring it back to you. We have just 30 seconds left in this. But do you think voters care? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think they care at all, to be honest. I think this is the Ottawa inside baseball. I think, um, you know, voters do care um, about who their, their leaders are and, and who uh, is running for office. and They want to get to know them. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to do that through the Ottawa media anymore in 2022. Uh, I think that's an outdated But to Steph's point, sorry to interrupt, Brian, but to done. Steph's point, there's no accountability piece here as being an elected official you and know, a leader of the opposition? What I would say is I, I, I think that there there should be accountability in politics 100 percent. And, um, you know, um, watching trust Justin Trudeau's press conferences, I don't think uh, a press conference is how accountability is done. Uh, you know, we see the prime minister every single day avoid questions um, and, and fail to answer them. So I, 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 I don't see um, how answering media questions actually brings accountability to politicians when we see, you know, the prime minister himself avoid accountability nearly every single day. 
Well, here's the fun part about this. Normally, Braden, we would be saying goodbye to you and keeping Stephanie and Ian, but you're sticking around. So guess what? I am. We're probably going to be talking <laughs> about this after the break. When we actually compare Polyev versus Trudeau, both leaders gave their year-end team speeches yesterday. So what did we learn about their priorities for the new year? And how will this conversation continue? Oh, you'll want to stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. And in Canada, better is always possible, but I don't accept Canadians and politicians that talk down our country. Let me be very clear. But let me be very clear for the record, Canada is not broken. It boils my blood to sit in a waiting room with my daughter who's got, uh, from time to time, a migraine headache while she waits and waits along with the other little children because of doctor shortages. Meanwhile, we have thousands of immigrants who are trained and skilled and able to do these jobs that are banned from doing so from uh, regulatory gatekeepers. Two very different messages from the leaders of the Liberals and the Conservatives. Pierre Polyev blaming Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government for all of the problems in the country right now. Well, Trudeau told the party faithful that Polyev is wrong and Canada is not broken. Are the battle lines for 2025 election campaign already being drawn? And which leader's depiction of the state of this country is likely to catch on with Canadians? Let's bring back the press gallery. From the Toronto Star, we have Stephanie Levitz from the Globe and Mail, Ian Bailey, conservative strategist from Navigator, Braden Akers, and Carlene Varian. She is the director, the former director of communications from public safety minister, former public safety minister, Ralph Goodale. Carlene, we're going to start with you. Canada is not broken. doesn't have the same ring to it as Sunny Ways, as we remember from 2015. Um, but will this be the new sort of mantra for the Trudeau government going forward to counter what we're hearing from Pierre Polyev? It's interesting that you brought up 2015, Mike, because what I heard in that speech that Trudeau made last night was actually a callback to uh, the message that he first brought to the national stage when he was running for prime minister in, in 2015. What you'll notice followed that comment about Canada not being broken was comments about how in hard times, whether it be the economic downturn, the COVID pandemic, uh, Hurricane Fiona out east, that Canada's at its best when everyone looks out for each other, pulls together and, and works through tough times. And that message of unity is, I think, what he was really getting at and trying to draw a sharp contrast there between the more sort of anger and frustration tinged message that you hear from Polyev. Speaking of sharp contrast, I have a feeling we might get that from Braden. I don't want to preemptively say that, Braden, but for the last few months, it would feel like some Canadians actually, they feel like they can't catch a break. I mean, there were long lines at airports, passport offices, and then inflation really took hold. And now we've got ERs that are bursting at the seams. I mean, blaming everything on the party in power is really what the opposition does. But can they sustain that without proposing solutions? And, Mike, don't forget, moms across this country couldn't get time off with their kids for nearly six months. Um, but let's put those issues aside. Uh, from a communications perspective, um, if you're actually repeating the attack on you, that, to me, that's a, a complete failure from a comms approach. Like, uh, the prime minister is saying Canada is broken, and, and Pierre, he's essentially repeating the attacks from the conservatives on himself uh, as a defense, which I find very, very odd and, and not a great way, um, you, you know, to push back against a message. 
Um, you know, the other way he pushed back, I think, is focusing on issues that, you know, Canadians would think, what on earth are you talking about? Um, or issues that have been talked, uh, settled, um, you know, when he first was elected to office, like gender parity in Canada, uh, in his cabinet. You know, that's that's something he did in 2015. Uh, why on earth are you bringing that up as a proof point that Canada isn't broken in 2022? Um, you know, he's touting investment in electric vehicle plants when his own government is actually failing to buy, uh, buy electric vehicles, um, according to recent news reports today. Um, you know, these these this defense, if, if the Liberals want to continue the, this way of defending themselves, Conservatives will be very happy in the months ahead. Steph, compare and contrast the two messages. Can Trudeau really continue to sort of counter that narrative when you consider there's also the health care crisis, pocketbook issues that Canadians are facing right now? Acknowledging, um, you know, the concerns facing Canadians is a line that the Liberals, I think, sometimes often struggle with because it ends up with, you know, statements coming from Prime Minister like fringe minority with unacceptable views, right. right? Where if you don't agree with the Liberal government, therefore there might be something wrong with you. And I think it can be very hard for leaders to acknowledge in a sincere and authentic way that, yes, there is a problem, yes, we have screwed it up, and yes, we are going to try and find a way to fix it. People don't believe that anymore, which is unfortunate commentary on our politics. Right. For the Conservatives, I mean, as, as you point out, Mike, being angry and blaming the government um, is what they do. Pierre Polyev, in his speech, made reference to, you know, our job is to give people hope. He presented some solutions. But, you know, if I just can go back for a second on the theme of media accountability, we have actually no idea how he would introduce any of those solutions, how he would make it so that foreign trained doctors, you know, can work more easily mm -hmm. in Canada. It's a very complex issue. Super easy to provide, you know, easy soundbite ways of a solution. But when you unpack it, that's a hard part of leadership, too. You know, I wanted to ask you specifically, though, on what Trudeau was saying, Canada's not broken, really appealing to people's sense of nationalism. Is, is that the play that you think he's trying to make here? I do. I mean, I think many Canadians, uh, as in many people in other countries, can find you know, problems that the country is facing. But the prime minister is trying to say the country isn't broken. And it's a very clever rejoinder to Mr. Polyev. We had two speeches yesterday. We had the speech from Mr. Polyev in the morning to you know, the Conservative caucus, about 119 people. We had the speech with the prime minister. There were 2,000 people there. There it was a speech for the tribute to Jim Carr mm -hmm. and other pieces. And so it was a very different kind of piece of communication. So there were two different speeches. But it's, you know, this is like round 16 of 9,000 in a fight. <laughs> this is going to go on for a long time. But I think maybe we're going to see this, this maybe the Prime Minister and his team believe they're on to something here. Right. And this is going to be part of the tactic going on for the next two years, yeah. Yeah, this line of attack. And maybe they'll take it for a spin in the next year and see where they are a year from now. Carlene, how do you see round 24, I don't know, in the new year, or 23 for 2023. How about that? Did I just come up with that? I did. I think you um, might have. So how do you see round 23 playing out? Well, I think it's exactly as, as Ian said. There are many more rounds to come. But I got to say, you know, I thought Poliev came out extremely strong uh, during the weekend that he was elected leader. Mm. He had a really, really solid victory speech. Um, we felt there was momentum. And then in the three-ish months since it's sort of stalled. We haven't seen him out very much. Uh, he didn't campaign at all during the by-election. And uh, it, it's starting to make me wonder, you know, when will we see those next steps? Is it too late for them to start to build momentum now, to start coming out with actual ideas that they can tell Canadians what they're going to do if they form a government, what they're going to do that's going to be better than what Justin Trudeau and his government have done? 
Braden, I, I wanted to ask you, since there's all these questions about the next steps for Mr. Polyev and not saying that you're inside that camp anymore, but is it the type of thing where it's like a hockey team, that you want them to peak at the right moment, and that Pierre Polyev is kind of just saving some of his, his best game for the election campaign, which is ostensibly in another 18 to 24 months? I think he saved some of those uh, big policy ideas for an election campaign, but I think obviously in a, a minority parliament situation, you want to be ahead as much as possible. And I think Pierre is actually doing that. Um, that's what, you know, I disagree with Carlene that he's, he's disappeared and somehow that's impacting his numbers. Um, you know, the Conservatives have been leading in nearly every single national poll uh, since Pierre was elected leader. I think only two polls have, have them behind. It's the prime minister who's had a problem. Uh, since uh, Pierre has been uh, named Conservative Party leader. It's not the Conservatives. So, Braden, what would you say to the by-election results then? Um, you know, I think Mississauga Lakeshore is a tough riding uh, for any Conservative to win. In fact, it's only been won by a Conservative once in my lifetime. Um, so it's, um, you, know, it, it, you know, in the 80s, I think Brown Marooney won it. But the reality is uh, that's a majority government seat. Um, you know, the voter, voters there were, you know, I think there was facing extreme electoral fatigue. They faced, you know, a municipal election, a provincial election, and now a federal by-election, which maybe, you know, they didn't hear quite a lot about. Um, you know, so, you know, those results, I think, were expected uh, from the conservative perspective. Uh, Stephanie, in 30 seconds, if you can, what do you expect for next year? I expect a pivot from Mr. Polyev. I do expect some kind of reset, a way to get him out in front of more people, a way to get him meeting stakeholders. I mean, never mind the, the press. We can set that argument aside. What else has he skipped out on in Ottawa in the last little while? He skipped out on a meeting with the AFN chiefs. He skipped out on a meeting with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the big city mayors. He's got to start building a pretty broad tent coalition. And some of that is listening to people, listening to people who have ideas, who, who might think that the Justin Trudeau liberals aren't functioning well, would like to see an alternative. And he's got to find a way to hear those voices and bring them in. Stephanie Lovitz from the Toronto Star, Ian Bailey from the Globe and Mail, Carleen Verein, thank you so much, and Braden Akers, thank you for being with us for two panels. Really appreciate that. That Thanks is your Power me. Play Day in politics, everyone. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We will be right back here tomorrow. It's our last show before the holidays. Make sure you tune in. I will be here. Until then, have a great night, everyone.